The division of the brain was when it first came up in the 1950s and the 60s, actually the 1960s, with the split brain research of Roger Sperry and Michael Gazzaniga and then other famous neuroscientists. Uh, at first promised this idea that um, the division between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere was very easy to grasp and that um, the left was entirely logical, reasonable, uh, language-oriented, and that the right hemisphere was the seat of uh, essentially just emotions and uh, spatial reasoning. And, uh, of course, then a lot of subsequent research showed that both the left and the right are involved in reason, thinking, um, laughter, uh, anything that's really important, we have to be able to use both hemispheres of our brain. And because things got a little complex, people threw out understanding the brain uh, because it just required a little bit more of a nuanced understanding. But actually, there's a lot of uh, research that's happened in the last 50 years uh, that paints actually a very interesting picture of not only how the brain, the hemispheres have divided, uh, but also in terms of how we as a culture prioritize one hemisphere over the other and how that prioritization is creating a lot of suffering for us. All of us, all species, require the ability to do two um, different kinds of tasks to survive. One basic set of tasks is the ability to keep track of threats, predators, friends, and have an overall picture of the actual environment that we're in, whether it's safe or not safe, whether we uh, can relax or whether we should be anxious and on guard, whether we are, in essence, secure or not secure. And this job is a very holistic awareness. It brings in a sense of the entire context that we're in. It doesn't think in terms of acquiring, getting anything. It doesn't think in terms of plans for the future. Its job is just to sustain a vigilant awareness of what's going on right now. Am I safe? Do I need to move closer to friends to uh, shelter, or can I relax? So that's one kind of attention. It's very global. It's aware of the entire setting. It's very realistic. It has no expectations about the way the world should be. It just looks to what's actually happening. And then the other kind of attention is the mind that uh, realizes we're missing something, like food or something that we need specifically to uh, essentially ensure our survival, give us an advantage, food, clothing, some kind of tool. So this is a very future-oriented thinking. It looks out into the world to try to find things that it knows will help us, and then it goes out into the world and it grabs hold of these objects and it brings them back to our shelter so that we can eat or build something. This type of thinking splits reality into just the thing it is we're interested in, focuses on it, sustains a narrative goal, keeps track of how well we're doing, and when we achieve, accumulate or achieve that goal, we're throughout rewarded with what's called dopamine. Dopamine is the reward neurotransmitter that makes you feel really, really good when you accomplish something. Now, it so happens that the entire part of the brain that sustains plans, that looks at the world in terms of finding specific tools that we can manipulate and extract from the world and bring back is all left hemispheric. And the part of the brain that keeps a vigilant, on-guard, sense of awareness or alertness to the overall 
situation that we're in right now without any expectation and doesn't break down reality into little items or tools or things to manipulate is the right hemisphere. So it so hope it happens that the left hemisphere is the realm of the brain that developed most of our language skills. It's the part of the brain that allows us to narrate our lives. It's the part of the brain that because it thinks in terms of I need something out there, it breaks down all of experience into towards self, others, desired objects. So it has a very specific type of focused, narrow attention that's very, very fixated on accomplishing a task. On the other hand, the right hemisphere was largely over the course of life becomes pushed into background awareness. It doesn't have as much language skills, so it really doesn't speak. It connects to us rather than through words. It connects to us through emotions. And those emotions really propel us to connect with other people because human beings, we achieve our survival by connecting with each other. If we were animals that could scurry up trees very fast, our right hemisphere would be constantly goading us to find a big, tall tree to climb up. And if we were animals that could scurry into holes and find sh shelter there, what we would be constantly feeling emotional impulses would be to bury into the ground. But because we're human beings and we are pack animals, our emotions are entirely organized about how well connected we are with other people. So we have two contrasting obligations. One obligation is to know if we're safely connected to other people or if we're surrounded by predators, what's actually going on in the world. What, you know, and we feel ourselves connected to the world and we feel ourselves as part of a setting. And this right hemisphere is very, very embodied. It carries around awareness of the body. On the other hand, the left hemisphere has very, very little neural uh, axonic connections between um, the frontal regions and the body. So it has very little awareness of our feeling. And in fact, language uh, narrative centers of the brain, the analytical centers of the brain, are very, very threatened by physiological emotions. They're terrified when we start to feel something. And so when we start to feel something emotional that's strong, we very often override it with thoughts, ideas, distractions, uh, narrative plans for the future. The left hemisphere is caught up in representations. It doesn't think in terms of how I connect with the world around me. It thinks in terms of what I can accumulate or accomplish. It seeks things like money, stature, job titles, reputations. It situates my life in an ongoing narrative or a stream of words that keep track of what I'm doing. Meanwhile, my right hemisphere makes its concerns known by feelings. If I'm not well connected, I feel sad. If I do something to the detriment of the tribe I'm connected with, I feel guilt or shame or embarrassment. If I do something that connects me well, I feel joy, happiness, elation. So that's how the relational mind communicates through embodied feelings. But the thing is, is that um, the left hemisphere is, it so happens, the region of the brain that is uh, increasingly emphasized in what Western culture. As uh, historians and neuropsychologists like Ian McGilchrist point out in his wonderful books, uh, like The Divided Brain, uh, Western culture started out with a good balance between a sense of being embodied beings in a world, but also with ideas about how to uh, make tools and machines and uh, accumulate advantages that would make life easier. And then as we became increasingly caught up in technology and a sort of mechanical understanding of the world, we became less and less interested in the holistic awareness and more and more interested 
and viewing the world as a set of tools that we could grab, ex extract without any penalty, without having any cost. So it's the left hemisphere of the brain that believes deeply, without any hesitancy, that we can pour pesticides on a field without having any repercussion to bumblebees or water table or to the environment that that field is a part of. Because the left hemisphere, which thinks in terms of self and others, breaks the world down into isolated objects and doesn't understand that all objects are interconnected in some way, that we are all iterations of an environment, an ecosystem, a world that supports us. Because the left hemisphere cannot obviously see those interconnections in action, it just sees objects, it tends to assume that it's okay to kill off a species or to destroy uh, an area of nature or to do something to the, the DNA of uh, crops, or in other words, to act like Monsanto. And that there will be absolutely no repercussions, because that's the way Western culture has headed. Uh, decontextualized, focused uh, mind state where we affix all of our attention to things we want, and we don't understand that there's any uh, that things belong to context. Things are inextricably connected, and if you change something, you change the setting to which it's connected. But it's more, it's bigger than that. I'm not here to give you some uh, pitch on um, environmental awareness, though that is a beautiful thing to have, because this also um, addresses each of us in our lives in an individual basis. Every single time we prioritize our career, our work, are um, accomplishing something over developing deep, empathetic, meaningful, vulnerable, disclosing relationships with other people. We are saying it's my left hemisphere that matters and my right hemisphere's need to feel securely connected with other people don't really matter. Every time an emotion of loneliness or sadness or frustration arises that we distract ourselves from, we're turning a deaf ear to a significant part of the brain that's saying, hey, I don't feel secure right now. I'm worried about this job change. I'm worried about this risk I'm taking. Every time we treat our procrastination as if there's something wrong with us or we're lazy, instead of understanding that procrastination is the right, hemisphere, right hemisphere's way of pulling our attention away from something it finds scary and vulnerable. We are turning a deaf ear to a significant part of our brains. As we become increasingly mired in the idea that security and purpose in life is accomplished through uh, savings accounts, uh, apartments, um, achieving and accomplishing things in work. While that is an important part of life, don't get me wrong, it's an entirely left hemispheric need to have our life matter by accomplishing things and to create a great life story for ourselves. And none of us think that a great life story is filled with just the times that we went home at night and we connected deeply with our loved ones. That doesn't create a great story, but it meets the right hemisphere's needs, which are just as important. Just as much as we need to acquire or achieve financial security, we need emotional security. And those two things are housed in completely different lobes of the brain or hemispheres of the brain because they are very, very contrasting needs. And so they're housed in separate compartments so that we can go about both. But as a result, we have a tendency to um, try to solve our lives in terms of accumulation, accomplishment, and achievement, rather than turning towards the people that are around us 
and vulnerably expressing our emotions, our feeling states, and leaning into uh, connection as a way to build happiness. It's not surprising that when the baseline happiness tests uh, were done in the 1980s, they all showed that the primary components that are missing and why people in so many countries of the West are so unhappy is because we don't have a lot of secure, empathetic, close friendships. When I meet with people one-on-one uh, -on -one who come with me feeling substantial degrees of unhappiness or uh, emotional uh, anxiety, agitation, fear in their life, again and again and again, they present themselves as seeking a solution that involves sitting alone on a cushion because we all believe that or hope that the answer doesn't involve vulnerably making new friends, which is, of course, the most painful thing for adults to do. We all have experienced woundings when we try to reach out to a friend we experience in our childhoods and growing up and all throughout our lives at times where we try to connect with other people and we uh, were rejected or disappointed or we felt judged or we felt that other people didn't accept us. So many of us are thrilled with the left hemisphere's idea of I can solve all your problems, just let me navigate us to the right job, the right apart, uh, you know, apartment with uh, the, uh, the right, uh, you know, objects. The most efficient way to rebalance and restore um, emotion, hemispheric uh, balance is to, to one, uh, obviously connect with other people because that's what speaks most directly to the right hemisphere. It's in those moments where we don't fix or solve each other's issues but we open to each other's needs and listen, and we don't try to tell other people what to do or seek other people to tell us what to do, but we simply express a, a state of being. I feel jealous, envious, lonely, tired, bored, uh, uh, frustrated, and somebody else listens, nods, and says, yes, I feel that way too, all the time. So that's one way, and the second way is to develop a constant awareness of our bodies. Embodied awareness is how the right hemisphere speaks to us. It doesn't speak through ideas, through language, through words. It speaks through those times our stomach gets tight, our shoulders clench with stress because we're taking on too much, and the emotional brain is saying, I'm trying to accomplish too much in the world. Stop. Downsize. Let go of something. You're taking on too much. When we're moving into unforeseen territories, we will procrastinate, stall, our stomachs will get tight, and our right hemisphere's cingulate, which is by far stronger than the left, because it's so cued into our survival, it will pull our attention away again and again from work and the things we want to accomplish towards naggling, niggling, I don't know what kind of word I'm looking for, uh, for uncomfortable memories and focusing our attention on basically warnings that say we're not happy. So that's a couple of different ways, but tonight's focus will be actually on another way to develop hemispheric balance and to restore some uh, connection with our right hemispheres and our uh, larger, more realistic minds, uh, parts of the mind, and this is all around a very wonderful word, which is awe, A-W-E. Wonder, transcendence, the sublime. Uh, awe is actually when they've studied it, when they show people amazing vistas, when uh, people listen to amazing uh, works of art or music, uh, the Areas of the right lateral hemisphere light up. It's a right hemispheric emotion. And it, according to a guy named Dr. Keltner, who's a psychologist at Berkeley, 
um, awe is actually a socializing emotion. It's there to get us to appreciate the fact that we are all part of an amazing environment, a world that's unbelievable, and to stop thinking of ourselves in terms of self and other, me and adversaries, you an obstacle for me getting my, my tool or my money or my, the thing I want to accomplish, and instead we see all of each other as part of a much larger ecosystem. Awe, as one psychologist says, shifts our thinking from me to we. It's a little bit too nice by turns, but uh, it sounds great, so. Awe focus forces us to break out of the left hemispheric uh, reductionist concepts, thinking of the world in terms of either this is good for me or it's not good for me and forces us to appreciate an experience in its totality, a stunning vista, an amazing experience, as a, an entirety of a whole set of sensations, not just the visuals, not just the thoughts we have in our head, but the way our body feels, the external sensations, the lights, the sounds, everything that we experience in a moment is part of all. It puts the brakes, interestingly enough, on the fight, flight, or freeze uh, region of the amygdala. When people are experiencing awe, they actually switch off large parts of the sympathetic nervous system, and the parasympathetic nervous system switches on. And because of that, what's called cytokines, which are deeply um, indicative of high blood pressure, uh, compromised immune systems, blood pre high blood pressure are reduced. It's very, very, very good for you to experience awe on a regular basis. Awe being a state where you're experiencing something and not turning it into an idea or a story. That feeling, I can only describe um, uh, just point to it, but I can't describe it, because it, awe as a right hemispheric emotion doesn't lend itself very well to language. But I remember when I was younger and traveling through uh, Italy, and I was lost in Florence, and there's these, all, all the streets are sort of curved, and then there's this, you can't really see, because the streets are very narrow, and you can't really see the sky, and then you stumble out into the square, and there's the Duomo, this cathedral that Milan. shoots up. What? That's Milan. Milan. All right, what's the one in Florence with the, the massive... Uh, I can't remember the... the yeah. Never mind. Anyway, <laughs> it's a big... I was, in, I was in Florence. So anyway, it was this massive cathedral, and I was struck by the immensity and the smallness of myself and the smallness of other people and how how... Uh, awe-inspiring and uh, groundbreaking and how beyond words or ideas such an experience must have been to the medieval mind when it stumbled upon this thing that just exploded out of the earth and would became, and just uh, uh, transcended all of the, the, the lesser I've got to get here, I've got to find my, you know, uh, the hostel I was staying in. And it just suddenly burst through that time in life where we stumble upon something that yanks us out of the narrative of, you know, story where we situate our lives, and suddenly the moment opens up and creates a breach in uh, the stories that we're telling about where we were, where we're heading, what happened to me in the past what's going to happen to me in the future. And it blows all of that self-oriented thinking away. When we have that experience, we are in awe. And what we're doing is we're actually deeply reconnecting with the right hemisphere of the brain. And we're really deeply rewarding that part of the brain that doesn't see the world in terms of self and other, but sees just the world in terms of symbiotic connection sees the world in terms of something that we're not separate from, but very much an iteration of or a part of 
uh, um, deeply embedded in. It dissolves self-fixation when we are in awe. We act generously, we act fairly, we care about the people we are with when we are in awe. Unfortunately, one of the enemies of awe is smartphones. <laughs> the tendency to stumble upon something transformative, transcendent, larger than life, and to immediately, instead of being present, to think in terms of future narratives, future Facebook postings to take out of phone, <laughs> and to transform the fullness of the experience into an emblem that we can carry around and show others. We're immediately turning the experience away from the right hemisphere to a left hemispheric reductionist story where we were there, we did that, been there, done that, what's next in the trip. So the ways we would uh, uh, go about connecting with awe, a few ways. One, drop the devices, put aside the smartphones, and actually take some time at night to either gaze at the sky or at uh, anything that's larger, that's spacious, that creates an entire feeling of context. Take a walk, obviously, through nature. Easier said than done in New York, but it is always one way to reconnect with awe. One um, immediate way to do it is to single out each day a routine that we do quickly and do it radically slowly, painfully slowly. On retreats, we have people walk, mindfulness walking, which is essentially to feel the sensations of lifting up the foot, moving it forward, placing it down. And it's interesting, though, when you take the I need to get somewhere out of walking, the goal, the left hemispheric narrative out of it, and you bring back awareness to the sensations of actually being alive, connecting with the ground, the embodied feelings of walking, it actually, even walking, can create a sense of awe, a sense of wonder, noting the balance, all the minute adjustments that go into it. Visiting a museum, looking at great art, forces us to open to awe. Um, there's nothing like standing in front of, even if you don't like this painter, it's worth using him as an example. When you stop in front of a Jackson Pollock painting, and there's absolutely no way to turn that experience into words, because there's no figuration, there's no story, there's no idea being presented. It's just a recording of a man connecting directly with his canvas or the work of Agnes Martin, or the work of any other great artist who learned to express themselves not through obvious concepts, but through, um, it, through gestures and images that were deeply embodied and cannot be reduced to ideas. Personally, I also love the awe that's inspired by music, especially for me as a kid, I remember the first time I heard Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. I felt immediately shaken to my core, and it was not just because of the black consciousness that was embedded in the music, but it was also because it presented a kind of beauty and a kind of transcendent emotion that I had never heard before in my family system. I still get that whether I'm listening to um, Don Cherry, or to some of the early records I loved as a kid, Captain Beefheart, etc. <laughs> so um, those are some of the ways we can connect with awe. But there's one other I haven't mentioned, and it's called meditation. And there is actually a 2,500-year-old meditation that the Buddha very... Uh, clearly and uh, cleanly uh, 
explained in the sutta that's clearly, I believe, meant to uh, cultivate a state of awe, a state of wonder, uh, with not just being, but also especially the wonder of the mind itself. So I'm going to lead you through this 2,500-year-old meditation, and we'll see together if we can cultivate a state of awe. So we can start this meditation with our eyes open and just find a relaxed position and look straight ahead of you and take in all of the sensations of what the, the Buddha at his time called the sensations of being uh, in a village. So just take that in and if there's anything tense in your body you can relax it, lift the shoulders up and drop them, soften the belly, relax the jaw, the muscles in the forehead and just drink in the sensations of the uh, western man-made world around you, the room, the sounds of the cars, the chairs, the sense of being in a room with lights, the city images behind me, and just note the state of the mind when it's looking at the world around us, see, taking in all the sounds of the world as it is. It's a mind that's very feels because it's we have our eyes open there's also a sense of there's a me and there's everything else that's not me there's all these other people and they're not me I'm something in this body so closing the eyes and at this point the Buddha instructs us to put aside the reflections of the world and to bring into our awareness all of the images and experiences we have with nature or any experiences I should say we have with nature that come to mind visualizing fields or forests as he says or large bodies of water sand or gravel or rocks rather than paved roads
awareness of the naturalness that exists beyond and around and that sustains us even though we've managed to construct cities with convenient objects and tools that make it seem that we can exist without support of nature, reflecting on how deeply we are connected to the natural, to the environment. And then gradually shift our attention to the third reflection, which is the earth itself that hosts us. The solidity of the planet beneath us, the solidity of the body and the fact that we are, in essence, all made up of materials provided by the earth, that we come from the earth that we return to it, that we are a part of it, that we are in no way separate from it. One way to bring to mind the connection that we have with the earth is to just feel into the sensations of contact that we're making with the cushion we sit on and to explore letting go of that sense of this is where I end and the world begins and to feel instead just a sensory connection, a sense of instead of this constitutes separation, this constitutes connection, interdependence, this constitutes being a part of something larger. So experiencing those contact sensations as just a gateway to that which I depend on.
So at this point in the meditation, the Buddha turns our attention away from even the earth to the limitless space in all directions that surrounds us and asks that we let go of this sense of being separate from it, to think of our body as something that interrupts space, but just to let go of the sense of inside and outside and just think of space in all directions. space without any boundaries or limitations or end. So as we said, letting go of the sense of the outline of the body constituting an edge and just the sense that There is unlimited space in all directions around us. And now for the final theme of this meditation, switching awareness from the sense of unlimited space to awareness of the fact that everything we've experienced ever in our lives, everything we will ever know, the entirety of what is real for us all exists in the mind from the farthest star that you're aware of to the nearest body sensation all exists in your consciousness in your mind 
So everything you've ever experienced in some way you are a part of, for it is happening in your awareness. How it appears, how much attention you give it shapes it. Something that you don't pay attention to can have very little effect. Something that you dwell upon can become a great concern. But even more so how the mind breaks up this fullness of an experience into artificial segments. This is me, this is not me, this is who I am. Sometimes it determines that our thoughts are who we are, sometimes our bodies, sometimes our feelings. Some people connect with abstract ideas for a sense of identity. But seeing if we can let go of any of that breaking up of experience and just bring our attention to the mind, hosting all of our experience, everything that we know, part of this consciousness, In other words, shifting awe and wonder away from even objects to just the unlimited capabilities of the mind. So as we bring this meditation to a close, if we, when we hear the bowl, simply open up our eyes and look around the room and get caught up in objects and people, we'll once again return the entirety of our fixation to the left hemisphere of the brain. But if we want to bring some of this state of a different awareness, a 
larger, more profound awareness with us, we start by bringing body sensations with us, the felt sense of the rest of the world which speaks to us through the body, our connection, our security, our relationship with something so much greater than ourselves starts with body sensations. So just setting an intention to keep the reflection in awareness as much as we become caught up in getting somewhere, doing some things, fixation on thoughts, memories, plans, agendas, schedules, an awareness of the body and how it expresses the needs of our other mind.